Welcome to this uh, brand new episode of the Satisfied God podcast. Uh, this is Raven Bird. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, today I'm going to be sharing uh, a lesson in Ephesians. We're going to continue that study in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, that's already been recorded, but I want to, before you listen to this uh, lesson, I feel it necessary uh, for me to clarify a point. Uh, you will hear that particular point that I'm attempting to make uh, near the end of this lesson. But you'll, so, you know, you'll have to keep it in mind. And I think uh, you'll recognize the point that I'm trying to make there. But in the process of the lesson, and like I said, uh, it's around the end of the lesson that you'll be hearing today. I referred to and read out of Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 and 14. I think I read more, but these are the ones particularly involved in, in the explanation I'm trying to clarify. So I'm going to read that to you. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 13. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And that that's the portion of, of uh, the chapter 2 that I had read and, and started explaining. But I feel that I feel short uh, in my attempt to explain something, uh, something that I think is vital for us to understand here. In the lesson, I will focus on the blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, and I focus primarily on the term handwriting. And in doing that, the explanation that I recall I think it could be easily inferred by that that I intended to say that this was not referring to the law of Moses at all. So I want to make it clear that that was not my intention. This is speaking of the law of Moses due to the term, it's evident, due to the term ordinances that's attached to it, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, speaking uh, of the ordinances of the law of Moses. The point I was attempting to make uh, was that it is not the law of Moses in and of itself that causes this contradiction, this contrariness, this innate enmity in that they were against us. It's not the law of Moses in and of itself that does that. In the lesson, I pointed out that the handwriting referred to actually speaks of, and the definition, if you look it up, actually means a certificate or document of indebtedness. And this can absolutely uh, be stated concerning the law of Moses because that's, that's, that's part of what the law of Moses did. But it is not merely because it autonomously or in and of itself documents indebtedness as the case. 
it could be called the certificate of debt concerning all men, whether they, they're Jew or Gentile, because when set against humanity, it meets, comes up against an inborn contradiction that is common to all men, which is the law of sin and death that is in us. The law of sin and death that rules from within. It is a governing law that rules the inward parts, the soul, the heart of men. Paul says it um, very plainly in Romans 7, and you can go back to that. that again, for those of you who haven't heard any of these lessons before, this is probably not a good part to just start in, but Romans 7 is not Paul speaking as a believer. It's him referring back to his time as a man under the law before he was born of the Spirit and before Christ was abiding in him. It was a, a zealous man attempting by the law to do and be what the law required. So you can say of the law of Moses that it is, in fact, the certificate or document of indebtedness. It is that handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us and against us. Romans 7, verse 13 and 14 says it this way. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Speaking of what is good is the law and, and, its, and its intent. It was sin producing death in me by that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, there's the means of this exposure, through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The King James says, be exceedingly sinful. And what this is saying is that the whole work of the law was not to produce this in me, it was to show that it was already there. It was to expose the exceeding sin that was already present in men. Then he goes on in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. There again is the contradiction. It is spiritual, meaning... It had a spiritual requirement. It had a spiritual intent. It was seeking for a spiritual end, but I am not the end it was searching for. In fact, I am the very opposite of it. I'm the contradiction because of a law that is in me. He will speak of that. The law of sin and death that was in his members. The law that ruled him from within made him contrary in every way to what the law of Moses demanded. So you see how the law and commandments are useful, being primarily a testimony of the perfection of Christ, but it is useful to simultaneously expose the insufficiency of, of corrupt and dead-in-sin humanity when it is faced, or all the time, but particularly when faced with such perfection, divine perfection, it demonstrates, it exposes the fact that mankind, born of a woman, has insufficient means 
to attain that divine standard of righteousness. It is impossible. Thus, there is an indebtedness, a, a real indebtedness that is exposed there. So this is the contradiction exposed, the perfection sought and corruption exposed. And for humanity, it never changes. That never changes. No amount of zealous efforts, perfect observance could cause the debt to turn to credit. It is impossible. The, the law of Moses, when encountering the internal law of sin, made manifest that great abiding liability that was in all men. Therein it can be called rightly the certificate of indebtedness. And the indebtedness that was being exposed by the law was not due to a lack of will. Paul says it. I try. I, I, the will is there. But how to perform it I find not. When I try to do good, the good of the law, evil is present. So the indebtedness that the law of Moses exposes because it sees in the heart. It doesn't just see the uh, actions of men, but it, it confirms the, <laughs> the corruption that is within men. So it is not there, the indebtedness, because there is not a lack of will or a lack of zeal or a lack of trying, but there is a lack of means. We don't have the means as humanity, those without Christ, those who do not have Christ in them. There is no means. Think of it financially. There is an insufficiency of funds when faced with the perfection of Christ. So the internal law that governed men from within made our will and our efforts it exposed them as incapable and made them of no consequence at all. So the need was exactly what Paul states to be the cure to this internal indebtedness that the law made apparent. First, that which was that which contradicted and stood eternally and at enmity against the righteousness. Uh, expressed and demanded in the law of Moses had to be blotted out, thus had to be crucified. And he came and put away in himself sin once and for all. Go, I'm about to talk about it, go to Romans 8. Put away sin once and for all. What the law could not do in the, the weakness, it was weak through the flesh. The contradiction could not make what men thought they could attain by the law, the contradiction made it impossible. So he came and did what the law was incapable of doing. He put away sin once and for all in his death. And for those now who have received him, been born of his spirit, we are now dead to sin. And through his abiding life, we are justified by his life. And being justified now, 
And notice, I am not throwing out caveats and conditions to this. Being now justified in Christ Jesus through the abiding presence of his life, there is no more indebtedness that the law can find. Because the contradiction has been effectually removed. The contradiction being the law of sin and death has been effectually removed and the law of the spirit of life himself has therefore freed us from that law of sin and death that the law of Moses exposed and showed. So, where there was once an indebtedness an insufficiency of spiritual funds, you could say, or we could say it this way, because a synonym of indebtedness, if you look it up, is actually bankruptcy. So, in the light of our being bankrupt of any spiritual life at all, where that was once the case, through the abiding life of Christ, the righteousness of the law which is what the ordinances required, is now fulfilled in us. That is what is called complete in Him. Not indebted, complete in Him. And we'll point then to Jeremiah where we've been talking about the document of redemption that is placed in the vessels. That document, not just the document written, but a... a monetary transaction fully measured out and paid. It is a redemption fully paid. The evidence and proof of that redemption now sealed in earthen vessels has taken the place of the document of indebtedness because now there is the full payment residing in our hearts, the full righteousness that the law was after, abiding in our soul. The righteousness the law required in us. The life the law required in us. Not of us, in us, through the dwelling in our soul of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And that life is in these vessels to dwell forever so that we may boast in the Lord our righteousness and nowhere else. And I hope, as you get to that point uh, in this lesson, that that will become clearer and maybe clarify where I fell short (laughs) in clarifying it during the actual class. I had my mind on bringing it to a close, I guess, and just did not take the time to make it Uh, at least as clear as I can. So hopefully this has helped. Um, And when you get to that point, it will will clarify it even more. So thank you guys so much for just just being there and listening and and reaching out to me in the ways you do financially. um, That, you know, the financial help is extremely uh, helpful. And I do not, again, take it for granted... um, I am, but more than that, I just appreciate the hunger that you have and will have to have if you are
consistently listening to this, the desire you have to know the Lord. That's the desire I have when I'm doing these lessons. Um, and that's the desire that I want us to continue in and come together and mutually grow in this grace that has been given to us in Christ. Thank you so much. Let's get to the lesson. All right, guys. Um, so we're in uh, Ephesians 1. We're going to start reading in verse 17. Uh, I'd forgotten uh, that we had had the class that we had last. Um, but we did whether I forgot it or not. So we're going to start in 17 and a little, we're still going to focus most on uh, what is said in 17, but uh, go, go into another verse and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but Ephesians chapter one, and I'm going to read from 17 to verse uh, 20. Uh, that the God, this is his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, this is an English standard version, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I'll just stop there. We're not going to get that far. I just wanted to kind of read some context in it. Uh, but you, 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 you can, you can glimpse, uh, you know, not only the beginning of this chapter, but in these, just in these words alone, you can see the, the declaration of this immense and immeasurable salvation that God has given, that God has embodied in the in the beloved, and the salvation that it says, um, I love the way it's worded here, that, that he worked in Christ um, when he raised him from the dead. And if we if we understand this this working of God in Christ when he raised her from the dead, we see that this is this goes directly to Hebrews where it speaks of the establishing of the second, or we could even say the instituting of the new covenant, the, the spiritual covenant, that which is spirit and truth that is now written in our hearts. And, you know, we, we talked about it a couple of sessions ago, and I dealt with it some during the conference in a little uh, more detail, but uh, I've spent a lot, a lot of time recently just examining Jeremiah 30 through 33, those chapters, and uh, going in kind of granular detail for some upcoming lessons that I want to do, whether here or just for the podcast. But, uh, you know, in that, in those chapters, you just see this beautiful detail of the certainty of salvation, security of the redemption of the of the believer and of the church and it's sealed in an earthen vessel that 
evidence of a redemption that has been, and I love the way it's worded, it has been uh, purchased, it's been written, purchased, and witnessed, and then placed in earthen vessels. And it's not secured because it's in the vessel. But it is secured in the vessel, if you can hear what I'm saying. That which is secured. We, we talked about it during the conference, and, and like I said, we'll get into it in more detail, but the, the document came in two forms. There was the document that was sealed inside of the vessel, and then the one that was open or not sealed. It was an open display inside the vessel. And but the incorruptible, the unchangeable proof that the deliverance has been paid for, the, the redemption has been secured, uh, abides in the vessel by God's own decree and God's own doing, and that secures it. The vessel is just the place that he places that which is, which is uh, legally binding. And that's a beautiful thought. And that's the idea that Paul really has in mind when he is speaking to the Ephesians and, and everybody that he's dealing with in his letters. He's speaking to them of something that is in its, in its nature. It is sealed, meaning that it cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be falsified. There is no additions can be taken or put to it. There's no subtraction that can be placed to it. Man's hand cannot get to it and make alteration. And that's good news when my whole Christian life, I thought that anything that I did, any thought that I thought could immediately alter salvation, could, could make some change had the power to alter what God had done and bought and purchased with his blood. I thought I had the ability to alter that. And this picture shows you that, no, it can't be changed. It is, it is unchanged and unchangeable, and it's placed in an earthen vessel. And that is so that our boast, that the rejoicing of our heart would fully be toward the God who has wrought such a work in us, not ourselves, but the God who has done it. And in this session tonight, I, I, I want to focus most, most of the time uh, looking at what we just read in Ephesians, but I'm going to focus a lot looking at a, a, a corresponding verse in Colossians. You know, we talked about these two letters being parallel to one another. And they are. And in some cases, we can, I think, more clearly understand what is written in one by looking at what is written in, in the other. But to begin, let's, let me just focus you on one thing, because this is, this is um, part of it. Paul is praying for them that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And this shows us something that most people don't understand, most people don't focus much on, but the Lord has made me focus on it a lot. Because those words let you understand how dependent we are 
upon a work of God, how dependent we are upon God granting to us spiritual sight um, that we are dependent on God to make known what he has wrought in our soul that we can't learn it by books we can't learn it by preaching and teaching we can hear it and and it can motivate the soul to go to God and and turn our heart toward God for him to make known in us what is real but we can't learn in any other way. We are fully dependent on the eyes of our heart to be flooded with his light, to be bestowed with the understanding that belongs exclusively to him for us to know anything. That's not saying we don't have it. I said during the conference that our ignorance of reality is not equal to the absence of reality. And you know, Paul says it this way, you, you lack nothing and you come behind in no spiritual gift, no bestowal of the grace of God as you await the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a solid ground upon which we stand. Our soul, that which is actually abiding in the heart, um, must be revealed of God. We have to see as God sees it. We have to perceive according to the perception that God himself has. And basically what, what the revelation of Christ, and I'll probably say it a couple of different ways, but it is God unveiling in our hearts or unveiling our soul to what he already beholds and what he already knows to be the truth that abides in our heart. If you take it back to Jeremiah and look at the document within those vessels, one is open. That means it is open and, and fully displayed in the sight of God. God sees in that vessel what is actually the proof of redemption. It is also sealed, meaning it can't be changed, but the other document is open, meaning God can see that document completely. God himself knows the proof and the evidence of our redemption. And he, in the revealing of Jesus Christ in us, it is, we could say it this way, God disclosing to the soul exactly what the document that secures our redemption actually says. Mm -hmm. He is reading, basically, declaring, uh, disclosing, Every article of that redemption, every, every uh, binding uh, part of that which is written in our hearts and is sealed within it. And if we read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, what we just read, and it's the same in the letter of Colossians and the verses we'll read in a moment. But this is something that may seem strange to you because of how we, how we preach it so often. And, uh, but when you read these words, like if that God may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. 
when you read that, what most don't understand and, and uh, aren't aware of is that if you look at that in the Greek language in which it's written, it is actually written in the aorist active tense, which means it's written in past tense. Uh, most time when we read it, we read it in the future tense, that God may yeah. give day to you right. a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that he would, at one point in time, fill your hearts with his light. But when Paul wrote it, he wrote it in the past tense and active tense together. It's called aorist active in the Greek. And what this means is that Paul is speaking of these things, the, the giving of the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, and the eyes of your heart being enlightened. He's speaking of these things as having already taken place in them, but having a present, ongoing, continued effect. Okay? This means... He's not just praying for, and you could, I guess you could ask the question, uh, do you mean he's not praying for this to happen, that he's not praying for them to actually see and have the revelation of Christ? No, I'm not saying that at all. What he's doing is praying for that thing that has already begun in them, that is already taking place in them presently, that has taken place in them to be continually taking place in them. That's why it's Aorist active tense, that what God has already begun to do in them would continue to be taking place in them. This has to know something, that the seeing of Jesus is not something that we just do, and then it's over. Right. That it's not something, you know, because we read these things because we say, well, these people are ignorant. Well, no, they've seen. They just need to continue in the seeing. Because when you are, listen, when we come into a salvation that is immense and eternal as we have, this is an ongoing eternal journey of the heart to behold and to know and to grow in this grace. So Paul is effectively saying what he has begun in you. How wonderful showing you the salvation that I am describing to you, I want you to continue. I want that to continually be taking place in your heart. And that's the thing that God would give you, because this is always something we're dependent on, always something. We have to continually live in a state of dependence upon this continual revelation of Christ in our hearts. Paul is saying, I want this to continue in you. Because it is the only way in which you may know and continue to know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then he begins to explain and expound that hope and describe it in vivid detail, and we'll get into it. But when he's speaking of the knowing, he speak, that's in the present active tense. That's not in past tense because we never know it in the past tense. We're always presently, actively knowing. Okay? When God is continually making known in our hearts, then we are capable of actually comprehending what God has wrought in us, what is actively present in the heart. The continually comprehending of what God has accomplished in Christ 
and made Christ to be unto us. The only means of that is God continually flooding our heart with the light of the knowledge that belongs to him. It is his knowledge being made known in us. It is his view being uh, unveiled in our soul. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's it's not just some one-time thing that he's praying for. In fact, the way he words it just states that beautifully. It is God hasn't done it. He is doing it. And my prayer is that what he has done and is doing will continue to take place in your heart because that's the only means for us to know anything of our salvation. I mean, First uh, Corinthians 2 plainly says it. This is something that the Spirit of God alone knows. No man can know this. This is outside of the scope of men. No matter how spiritually astute we may think we are, anything we know that is divine, that is spiritual, is the result of the mercy of God being extended to us where God makes known his view of the thing that is true in our heart. We know nothing outside of that. We have no, you know, uh, Brother Spark says it this way, a new reality which we've come to in Christ demands that the spiritual faculties of the heart be enlightened. If we have come to something that is reality, that is spirit, we must perceive it by the spirit. And that's what he means when he says, and we'll get to it later, the eyes of the heart being enlightened, because that speaks of the perception that is, or the faculty of perception that is created of God to behold what is otherwise unseen and unperceivable by natural eyes. It's the eyes of the soul. The eyes on your head is not the eyes he's talking about. He's saying there's, there are these faculties that God has given to you that must be awakened in his light to observe what he has done, to observe spiritual life as it truly is. So these natural eyes were not created to see this which is unseen and unperceivable to them. He has given the heart, the soul, the faculty of perception and sight. But he has to flood those eyes for them to actually function, for them to actually be able to observe what he has wrought. That is why uh, Jesus says it to Nicodemus, except a man be born of God. He cannot what? See the kingdom. You can't see the spiritual kingdom until the faculties are flooded with his light, until there are those faculties brought to life so that they can see what God has wrought. And the only way that happens is you're born again so that the kingdom of God is in you, and then there is something for the eyes of the soul to behold. Otherwise, there's no purpose. There's no reason. And what I'm saying by that is very simple. For the soul to perceive something, it has to be there to perceive. God will not reveal 
or uncover or disclose something that's not presently there to perceive and see. There is a salvation that is immense and immeasurable and embodied in a perfect life that abides in us. And I'm sorry, but the faculties that behold a natural creation can never see them, can never see that reality. But so many of us do. We try to marry those two realms of of existence together, and they just don't, that's, they're not meant to be married together. So we attempt to observe spiritual realities when the, within the scope of the limitations of natural faculties, and you can't. He says the kingdom of God does not come with observation. It does not come with ocular evidence, that word means. These eyes cannot observe the kingdom. But most people still try to observe the manifest reality of the kingdom with these eyes. So unless something physically happens, they don't think the kingdom of God has come. Unless something observable to the natural eye is present, they don't think anything's real. But again, the reality is what God has wrought in you, in your heart. And that is a place that God only knows. God only perceives what he has done within the soul. And while spiritual fullness is ours in Christ and is Christ in us, that's who spiritual fullness is, we can all remain ignorant of that. We can remain ignorant of the fullness that is present. We can remain ignorant of the nature of that fullness because we're attempting, again, to observe it in a realm in which it does not belong. It is not compatible with natural faculties. And that is why it seems so wrong for people to hear a statement like it's written in First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, in the midst of all that he says about the wisdom of God that no man can know, the things that is unperceived by the natural men that only the spirit can see the depths of it. He says this, for we have the mind of Christ. Now that seems as if that cannot be true. We look at ourselves and we say, no, that's not true of me. Yes, it is. We have, if Christ is in us, we have the mind the understanding of Christ dwelling in us. And we can, we can fight that all day long due to all that we can point to in ourselves, all the thoughts, the acts, the deeds, and all these things that was seen to argue with that fact. But that's a definite statement that Paul makes. We have the mind of Christ. So what does that mean? It means that the need that we have is not for us to have the mind of Christ. It is for us to have that perfect and eternal mind, discernment, thought, continually disclosed in our heart. Remember, it's not our mind. It's the mind of another. That mind must be revealed in us. The mind that we possess, because he's there, must be revealed, meaning we can see and know as he 
knows it to be. We will know in the seeing of him what no man can know, only God can, that we will be cognizant of a wisdom that is outside the scope of human perception or human learning. And it's only in the continued beholding of Christ our life that we can see reality beyond ourselves. Because guess what? The faculties with which we try to observe spiritual reality is always these natural faculties. That's just the default of men. And that is a false judgment because it is a false perception of reality. If you want to refer to a verse, we can refer to 2 Peter chapter 1 for that. In verses 5 and 6 and 7 there, he begins to speak to them of basically the fruit of the Spirit. He expounds to them and enumerates the fruit of the Spirit. And what he's saying to them is that in your faith, and I know the King James says, add to your faith, you know, charity and love and patience. But if you read it in the uh, literal translation, it, it's actually saying, in your faith has been fully furnished these particular realities. That your faith has furnished you with peace, uh, love, and all the things that he lists there, with what is called in some terms the spiritual virtue, right? the virtues of spiritual life. These have been fully furnished to you in faith. In the fact that you are born of God, there becomes a full furnishing of your soul of all spiritual reality. And then he says in verse 8, for if these things are yours and are increasing, and some say, this is from the English Standard, some, 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 verse, uh, some translations will say, if these things are known to be present and abounding, they keep you from being ineffectual and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says in verse 9 this, but whosoever these things seem to be lacking, these qualities are lacking. It says he is nearsighted. And so nearsighted, again, the English Standard, it says he is so nearsighted that he is blind. King James says he is blind and cannot see afar off. What does that mean? To see afar off, if you look at it, the dictionary meet in Strong's, it says to see beyond your own face. That is what the seeing of Jesus does. Because I can be filled with the fullness of God, and if I am born again, that is exactly what is true of my soul. It is filled with every spiritual blessing, and all fullness abides in it. But guess what? If I am still blinded, and the definition of blindness is I still see my own face and try to see spiritual reality within the context of that person, me, I'm still blind to the reality that is there. And in being blind, I've forgotten that I have been cleansed from my sin. It didn't say I wasn't cleansed. It says you've forgotten that you have been purged 
clean from sin. The cleansing from our sins, what does that mean? That means we are dead to sin, dead to Adam, alive unto God in Christ. That cleansing is the moment when these spiritual realities, that is Christ in us, come to be found in us and are abounding in us. Where sin once abounded, grace now abounds. These are the gifts of grace. These are the realities of God's mercy bestowed to us. Christ being in us, made unto us all things. But if I still see me, if my sight is so nearsighted that it is beholding my face, attempting to define the validity of a salvation that is perfect in the face of that which is not, then I'm still going to not understand. How does that compute? What is the, how do those things correspond? Well, they don't. You can't find spiritual reality within the limited scope of a natural perception. God has to open the eyes of the heart to see reality as it is. And as it is, is not of me, but of God. That's when the soul becomes clearly cognizant of the truth of salvation as it truly is. It doesn't become true. It becomes the truth I behold. It becomes the truth that now I see by the work of God revealing that truth in my soul. The spirit of truth now makes my soul aware of the truth that is in me. Now, it's the same thing that Peter does when you know, how we look at things, our perception, the, the reason, and this is the reason, this is a, a misconception that most people have, and this is the reason Paul will say, this that happened needs to continually happen. This seeing of Jesus needs to continually be taking place. Because we never see the fullness in one glance. We are continually learning, continually growing, and any, any means of growing and uh, learning the reality of spirit is through the seeing of Jesus Christ. And that has to be continually taking place. And again, we are dependent upon God to do that. But see, Peter did the same thing, and God rebuked him. Remember, remember when, the, when the sheet comes down, and he says, kill and eat to Peter, and Peter, being a man loyal to the law of Moses, says, hold on now. I can't eat this. This is unclean. This is, this is, uh, this is defiled stuff. This is polluted. I can't, I can't take part in this. And what is, what does God say to him? Do not call what I have cleaned common or unclean. Now, that goes back to what Peter just said. If, if he sees himself, if he beholds the flesh trying to understand the reality of spirit, then he sees himself and he's forgotten, has no understanding that he's been cleansed from his sin. 
God does this because he's about to have to go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is not a Jew, not a man of the law. He's a man that has kept the law, but he is a Gentile. And he's saying, no, 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 I can't do this. But God has transacted a work in the heart of Cornelius that Peter can't perceive by looking at the outside. Peter can't look at Cornelius and say, hey, this guy's a believer. How do you know? He still has his preconceived prejudice of he's not a Jew. He's, he's, he's unclean. God had already made a transaction, worked a cleansing in his heart. First John says it this way, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all, hear that word, all unrighteousness. That is a total work. There is a cleansing that took place the moment we were born again. And, and, and the word common here, when he says common, uh, you know, don't call anything common. It means profane, ceremonially unclean. God had already done something in the heart of a man. He could look at and say, nope, I can't touch that. I can't go there. So that means it's something we can't perceive by looking at the vessel. But it is God who knows the reality. And unfortunately, so many Christians assume because of whatever, past, works, present deeds, whatever, that they are yet defiled, that they are unclean, that they're profane. Now, why do we perceive that? Because we have an unhealthy attention placed upon the earthen vessel, placed upon the natural body and all of its proclivities, whatever you may think, bad or good. I'm telling you, bad or good. When the natural vessel, when the natural body is still the thing that determines it, it is not of God, no matter what it is. But we have such an attention upon that. We give most of our time there, even if we don't. I mean, even if we don't understand, we do. I'm promising you, most do. And we put our attention there and not upon the surpassing, abounding power of the life that abides within the vessel. And that is why the internal perfection that abides in us because Christ abides in us must become the acknowledged governing truth of our heart. Now, listen to what I just said. Not that it would become the governing truth of our heart, but the acknowledged governing truth. Because if the reality of Christ in us, the reality that, can, that makes it possible that of our soul can be declared clean and not common, cleansed and not uh, defiled, blessed, accepted in the beloved, redeemed, instead of condemned, unclean, empty, lacking, 
The only thing, the only reality that can make that declaration and make it possible that that can be said of our soul is the present and keeping abiding power of Christ living in it. Nothing we did or could ever do. But the truth of that, that is openly displayed to the sight of God, that is known of God to be the truth concerning our soul, must be revealed, must become the comprehension that we walk in. As, as Paul would say, the life I live in this flesh now, as one who is crucified with Christ and in whom Christ lives, where it's not I but Christ, the life I live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live in an understanding that he is sufficient and not me, that the one who is in me is greater than the one in whom he lives. And I live every day in this body in that acknowledgement. And therein, I do not frustrate his grace. I live in the grace of God. I live in the acknowledgement of the grace in which I stand. Because that is the grace in which we stand. Not I, but Christ is the grace in which we stand the moment we are born again. The need is for God to unveil our hearts to that truth, to the person who makes that true of our soul. Because I promise you, until that happens, no matter how much of this you hear, you can still live ignorant and still live condemned in your own imagination. You will perceive yourself. You will see your own reflection. And you will see no qualifying evidence that validates that statement concerning your soul. God revealing his son in you is the only means by which the validation of your salvation becomes the acknowledgement of your soul, the, the, the understanding in which you live on a daily basis. Paul at one time looked at that body in which he lived, looked at his flesh, and because of his circumcision in the flesh, his touch-not-taste-not-handle-not theology of Judaism and the Jews, he believed he was righteous. He believed he was holy. He believed he lived unto God perfectly and pleased God at all, in all things. But it was in the seeing of the Son that his soul finally beheld the one who pleased God. God was pleased to reveal his Son in me. Why? Because that's the moment in which the one who pleases God can finally be made known in the heart in which he dwells. Now God can make that soul know as it is known. That soul behold the reality God beholds and see 
that God does not look at Paul for the evidence and validity of anything. He looks at the Christ who lives in Paul to validate everything. This is why Christ must be revealed. Not so we can be saved, but so we can see the salvation of the Lord that is present. Not so we can have perfection, but so we can see perfection perfectly and accurately defined in the face of Jesus Christ and not our own. You know what that brings? It brings the soul, or let me say it this way. It makes the soul capable of abiding in the rest that God has brought it to. It makes that soul capable of living in the true Sabbath. In full understanding of that Sabbath, not trying to, you know, live contrary to it. Not trying to establish a righteousness, but living in the cognizant of a righteousness God himself has established and fully bestowed and perfectly given. See, that's why the necessity of continually beholding Jesus, because then you'll stop trying to marry the flesh and the spirit together. You'll see that God has made a clean cut and that the only thing that is valid in the sight of God is Christ living in us. And then your heart, you know what your heart does in that context? It desires to see more of that Jesus. <coughs> Continuum, just I want to see more of this one. Why? Because it's good news. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's there and has secured the soul in a perfect life, a perfect salvation, a righteousness that is of him and not of us, something anchored in eternity and not in the superficiality of human works and efforts. Yeah, I want to see that. Hallelujah. I want to know that salvation. I want reality to dawn in my heart as it is in my heart. That's why he has to Pray for them, because <laughs> his preaching can't get that done. His preaching can tell them how great it is, and it has, and he'll continue to tell them how great it is, but he has to just stop and say, guys, now I'm giving this to God. Your soul belongs to him. This is something he has to make known. And we could stay on that forever the necessity of seeing Jesus. Why? Because there's a great salvation to see. Why do we have, I mean, what's, you know, what's the need of Christ being revealed in us? It is, it is as great as the salvation that we have in. I mean, this, that's the truth. That's why that's a continual thing. Salvation is a salvation that abides in us completely, fully, eternally. The whole of it abides in the soul fully. The knowing of it, the growing, that's why it says grow in the grace, the knowledge of the Lord. That is something that never 
ever ends. You don't graduate from this school and get a degree. You are continually learning at the feet of the only one who knows the truth. And we subject ourselves. This is the whole journey of a believer, the whole life of a believer. We subject ourselves to the teacher. We fall at the feet of our teacher and say, show me my salvation. Show me Jesus. Not that we're lacking it, so we have to see to get, but show me the salvation you have made perfect in me. And again, that's that never ends. Thank God for that. Amen. Um, so let's move on a little bit. I'd say we're going to focus some on a parallel verse of what we read in uh, Ephesians. And that is in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we read a couple of places in Colossians where it says this, but uh, depending how, uh, how far we get, uh, We've got a five or ten more minutes, I think. Um, let's see. Colossians 1, verse 9. <clears throat> For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, and this is, again, parallel with chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, 19 of uh, Ephesians. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Again, his desire is, is, is towards something that has, is, and continues to take place. His desire is for them to continue to be, as they have already been, filled with the knowledge, with, with the knowledge of God, the, the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy. Listen to these words, because this is what I want to focus on a little bit. Uh, I got on some rabbit trails, and we're going to chase for a little while. Um, that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks to the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who had delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And we'll stop there. Now, let's read one more place in Colossians, because he prays the same kind of the same thing for the church in Laodicea, verse 1 of chapter 2. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted. That word means established. It also means to be, well, there's so much there, it takes us a while to look at it, but that, that, that comforting um, also means to be brought to the bosom of. And there's a lot there. We, we won't cover that tonight, but 
that their heart may be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father, who is Christ, is how it's actually worded in, in the Greek. The mystery of God, the mystery of God the Father, who is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, all of this I say, all of this prayer, I'm saying this, desiring this to be true and ongoing in you, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now, notice first in both of these places, really, but how Paul describes the motivation of his prayer for such a full knowledge to be given and, and continue to be taking place in those who are in Christ. He says this is because I say these things to you, I pray these things for you, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. See, Paul understood that the presence of a full salvation, which he knew they had, and he's telling them they had, does not ensure safety from the deception of enticing words. Man, there's a lot of enticing words out there. There's a lot of words that seem really good. And if you if you hear them on the surface, they sound really true, really spiritual. But they are a deception. Why? Because they bring you right back into the picture. They make men the object of God's intention, not Christ. They bring your flesh back into the picture. They bring your actions back, and they bring you there and say, now, here's, here's what you need to do to live right. And this goes back to our thought when he says that you may walk worthy and all pleasing unto God. I want to talk about that a little bit before I stop, because these enticing words are ways that men can heap a whole lot of condemnation on you, and it sounds biblical. It sounds theological. It sounds right. But they have divorced the soul from the grace of God. They have divorced the soul from the reality of Christ in it. And they try to make you focus on things, touch not, taste not, handle not. He's going on in chapter 2 to say that. He's talking to people wanting to bring them back under the, the, the works of the law and the ordinances of the law. But a full salvation in your soul does not ensure that you're safe from the deception of men's words. And that's why he prays God will give them the full assurance of understanding. Because that's when the full assurance comes when understanding comes, the full assurance of understanding, the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. And he's already said the mystery of God is what? Christ in you. He's wanting your soul to come to acknowledge the mystery of God who is Christ in you. 
that you would see that everything that God said throughout the ages, the whole mystery that was hidden throughout those ages of testimony is summed up in one life that is present in your heart. It is Christ in you. Do not let any man tell you that the fullness of Christ in your soul needs to be supplemented by ordinances, circumcision, holy day. That's a ridiculous, but we do it. And most people are still deceived by those type of things. Why? Because they haven't seen and come to the full assurance of the riches of the grace that is bestowed all spiritual blessings. So they go about trying to go on a treasure hunt to try to find riches, to try to attain riches through their works, through their efforts, through their, uh, what does it say, the um, uh, denial of flesh, or even the, uh, however he words it, what does he say here? Uh, neglecting of the body. My God, we can just stay there for a couple hours. Now people say, oh, you need to neglect this and neglect that. That's not spirit. That's not spirit. <laughs> no, neither are you. You know, I mean, you can say that about everything. The problem is we have our pet things that we have somehow transformed magically into spiritual things. They're good. <laughs> you know, I always thought about, you know, people say, well, I don't go to my, my, my so-and-so's ball games or to their sporting events. Cause you know, that's just a natural thing. And it's not supposed to, you know, it just takes too much of my time away from Jesus. <laughs> and my thought is you didn't want to go to that game to start with, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be caught there dead there anyway. So you're just taking your own, you know, inclinations, and now you're deeming them spiritual. That's what we do. None of it is. Telling none of it. And if we, I mean, the enticing words will always be certain things like that. Don't touch, don't taste. And they're plausible words. That's what the word entices me. It entices you, it entices you because it seems plausible. If you don't do this, or you do this, you are spiritual. No, you know what makes you spiritual? Christ living in you. Nothing else. You want to know spiritual life? See Jesus. That's how you know spiritual life. And I find the more you know Christ to be your life, you will stop trying to conflate the natural things with the spiritual. You'll realize, no, that's not spiritual at all. It has nothing to do with anything. So as Paul would say, circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't really matter, does it? To most people, it has a whole lot of significance, and you can stand there knowing it's all nothing. It means nothing. Why? Because your soul is engrossed with the reality that actually means something, that is actually real and eternal. So all the other stuff doesn't matter. 
doesn't make you spiritual doing it or not doing it. All right, throw my soapbox off. And that's why, I mean, going back, looking at those things like these plausible words that will entice us and deceive us, you go back to Jeremiah 32, read it. After God says, put these this evidence in the earthen vessel, and God says, because this land will one day be fruitful, and they will come back to this land, and there will be vineyards, and there will be houses in this land. And then Jeremiah begins to, to, to pray to God, and he says, wait a minute now. You're the God who made all of these things. You made the world. You did all of these great things, and you you freed them from the slavery of Egypt. You brought them with your mighty hand in, unto yourself and all that he did. And then he says, you brought them in and redeemed them, and then they did not obey you. They've at every turn slapped you in the face and walked away from you and not obeyed you. And he says, and then you tell me to buy this land and put the evidence of the redemption in earthen vessels? Why in the world would you do that? Look at these sorry people. I could do that too. You could too. But you know what it's showing? That the redemption is certified because God has placed it in earthen vessels. He secured it in earthen vessels. And guess what? It doesn't depend upon the people. It, de it depends upon the redemption that is fully paid for. <laughs> that sounds too good to most of us. And we almost fight those things. So that can't be true. Wait a minute. Those people are sorry people. Yes, I'm sorry people too. But my salvation does not depend upon me. It depends upon the redemption that abides in me. The one who lives in me secures them. And he could balk at it and say, wait a minute, look at these people. Why in the world would you do this for them? They have rejected you. And he's like, I have rejected them. I've secured them. I've done this. They can't boast in themselves. They have to boast in me. I've done all of it. You see, that's what seeing salvation as it is ensures that our boast would be in him and him alone. And so uh, if you go into Colossians, and, th and this this will be where we end, but we'll, I guess we'll get to the pleasing and walking pleasing toward God next time. But in Colossians chapter 2, he continues on, and he begins to speak to them of being complete in Christ and how they have received the uh, circumcision not made with hands, a circumcision of the heart. And then he goes on into verse 12, and he says this, uh, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins and your and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him. Same thing said in Ephesians. When we were dead in sins, you know, we have been quickened together, raised together. Um, 
hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, and listen to this, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I want to take a second look at this in William. Look at the word handwriting. The handwriting of ordinances that were against us, or that was against us. It speaks more than just of the law of Moses. More specifically, it speaks of the law of sin and death that was within us, that made us, by that indwelling government of sin and death, it made us contrary to the perfect righteousness that the law of Moses required, right? So the law demands perfection. Mm -hmm. Right. Me, not perfection, right? Because there was a government that governed from within. The law, there was a law in me, as Paul says, sin and death. And that made me what? A slave or a debtor to sin, right? So the word handwriting, when he uses that word specifically, it's the only place it's used in the scripture, it actually means a written document, a signed certificate of indebtedness. This is from the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament. You look it up. Listen to these words. It is a handwritten, signed certificate of indebtedness, it, meaning the handwritten ordinance that it's talking about, that God has nailed to the cross, that was contrary to us, was a certificate of indebtedness. It meant that we were always under the load and under the debt of something. What? Sin, corruption. We were always condemned. We were always debtors. If you read Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 12, and this is after he's talked about being freed from the law of sin and death and all of that, then he goes into verse 9 of Romans 8 and says, You are not in the flesh. But in the spirit, now look at the transactions that's happened. You are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. That's the only catalyst. That's the only necessity for that to be true. You're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit because the spirit dwells in you. His presence in you has made that transaction from flesh to spirit. Okay, And then in verse 12, from that, he says this, because of this, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. We are no longer indebted to the flesh. The certificate of indebtedness no longer corresponds to us. Why? Because we are in the spirit and not in the flesh. In Romans, he says we were slaves of sin. Now 
were slaves of righteousness. We are no longer debtors to the flesh. We are debtors to the spirit. You could say it that way. But there was a document or a certificate of indebtedness that made us inwardly contrary to the righteousness of the law of God. What's the only effectual remedy to that? A new document has to be written. A new document has to be written. And where is it written? A new covenant written in your heart. I will write it in their heart. That's Christ in you. That's the new document, not of indebtedness now, but of a redemption fully paid. A fully bought and paid for redemption, a deliverance that is not yet to be paid, but a full deliverance that's paid fully, measured out, witnessed, as it says in Jeremiah, and sealed in earthen vessels. You see that? We are no longer under the power of a certificate of indebtedness. But now a fully paid for document of redemption abides in it. And that ensures completely, secures it completely that we are found in him having nothing of our own. We are found in him having only that which he has made unto us. And that the reality that is known of God now governs us from within. But what is the need for us in whom that is true? The reality that God knows concerning our souls must be revealed and must become the realization and acknowledgement of this heart. Or else I'm going to still feel as if I'm indebted. I'm going to still feel like I'm lacking. Mm -hmm. I'm going to assume there's something missing when there's nothing at all missing. (laughs) God has wrought a work that is perfect. And the revealing of Christ is nothing more and nothing less than the soul beholding that perfection in the face of of a perfect man and that the gaze of the soul is fixed there and fixed there forever as God's view and perception has been fixed there from eternity. So our soul correspondingly beholds the same thing so that we're no longer at odds with God's perception. We are being having made known in us what God knows to be true. And that truth is the truth in which we live and move and grow because it is the spirit of truth that makes it known. And as we know the truth, that truth shows the liberty of Christ that is in us. It shows the freedom with which we have been made free. Yes. And it keeps us, it makes us, let's say it this way, it makes us unsusceptible to the deception of men's enticing words, men's plausible methodologies, (laughs) 
or they say, hey, man, you got Jesus. That's great. But, and all of a sudden, the wall of truth just comes up and you don't hear anything after the but. Mm -hmm. Right. There it goes. That's it. Because you can't put a but on eternal reality. Mm -hmm. There's no additions to this. No. There is fullness that we possess because Christ lives in us. And there's a fullness he is revealing as we grow in this grace. And thank God for it. There's an eternal journey. Yes. And yeah. in that, man, all we have to do is let him mm -hmm. do what he does. I mean, it is let us be being carried on. Amen. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to carry ourselves. <laughs> All right, guys, we're we're done for tonight. That is so true.